Welcome to Coaching Carrie, the podcast where two lawyers turned life and leadership coaches rewatch Sex and the City and can't help but wonder, how would Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, and Samantha's lives have been different if they just had a coach to help them along? Becky, I had to look up the word Eurotrash. Come on, you serious? Well, I just really didn't feel like I had a clear enough understanding of the word. So I went to your friend of mine, Wikipedia, and looked it up. And Wikipedia tells me that Eurotrash is a derogatory term for certain Europeans, particularly those perceived to be arrogant, affluent, and expatriates in the United States. So uh, there you have it. There you have it. That's funny. Hey, everybody, welcome back to our discussion of Sex in the City, Season 1, Episode 5, The Power of Female Sex, and the episode that puts a real fine point on the theme of this entire season. (laughs) (laughs) So this episode originally aired on July 5th, 1998, and I don't know, this episode to me, Becky, is like super emblematic of Season 1 because it centers around this friendship between Carrie and her jet-setting friend, uh, what is her name? Um, Amelita Amalfi. Amelita Amalfi, who never again appears in the series after this episode. But they're like and sisters. Well, we never see each other. Um, right. I mean, I, we can get to the accent in a middle in a minute, but like we never see this person again. And this happens so often in season one, like this idea that the girls have other friendships, but then nobody ever returns. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So I, yeah, I don't know. Do you have like a a favorite single serving friend from season one that we've already met that never comes back again? I mean, I don't know. There's so many good ones. I I kind of still am stuck on that. The Hamptons couple, Peter, and I can't remember the woman's name. Patience, yes. I think it's just because I think it comes down to like patience is so not Carrie's vibe. And I'm just still dying to know, like, how did that happen? But anyway. For sure. I actually had picked them as my favorite too, because they're just so odd. Yes. Yes. What's going on here? So yeah. So this episode is just, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, but you know, let's, I guess we should just jump right into it. So we opened this episode at Balzac, uh, which is the hottest new restaurant in New York, where we find Carrie and Samantha waiting at the bar for a table and ready to pass out from hunger. Samantha goes to the host stand to try and talk sense to the hostess, but fails. So the girls take off to get Thai takeout around the corner. Carrie stops at Dolce & Gabbana on her way home and is about to purchase some ridiculous purple marabou shoes when the salesperson cuts up her credit card and hands her the phone, saying that the credit gods need to speak to her. But Amelita swaggers up and offers her boyfriend's Amex Platinum to cover the charges. Carrie says she thinks Amelita is fun, and Amelita seems to be having fun spending Carlo's money all over town. She asks Carrie to get in touch later at the Four Seasons where she's staying. Back at Bradshaw Manor, Carrie is worried about bills, which is a brand new theme for this episode. We haven't heard much about any of the girls' financial situations up until this point, and the show dives right in making us believe that Carrie is really on the brink financially. She sits on the bed, wistfully thinking about how Amelita has been able to parlay her sexual desirability into financial freedom, but eventually asks, where's the line between professional girlfriend and just plain professional? 
The girls come over for poker night and use the time to debate how women can and should use their sexual power over men. Charlotte tells everyone that she's worried. She's been invited to see new work by an artist that she admires because, well, he seems to admire her. Samantha says, go for it. Miranda threatens to sue and Skippier breaks up the night when he arrives over an hour early to pick Miranda up. Perry's in bed at midnight, which she calls an early bedtime, when Amelita calls and asks her to meet at Balzac. Perry resists at first, but heads out with her new marabou kicks to meet Amelita and the gang, which includes Gilles, a French architect, apparently on a several-day layover on his way to Brazil. Perry is charming and flirty and floats into the night sky after Gilles asks if he can see her the next day. Skippier shows up at Carrie's apartment the next day complaining about his obsession with Miranda while Carrie gets stressed for her date with Gilles. The episode takes a decidedly cinematic twist as we see Carrie stroll around Central Park with Gilles in soft focus and then magically being transported back to his hotel room. In the morning, Gilles tells her not to get up as he leaves for the airport, but she finds an envelope with $1,000 cash on the bedside table. Carrie calls in Miranda and Samantha as reinforcements and wonders, what about me screams whore? As they eat eggs and <laughs> eggs benedicts and omelets, Carrie decides she's just going to think of it as a bad date with a cash bonus, but honestly doesn't seem quite so sure. Charlotte meets Neville Morgan at his art farm, only to discover that the apotheosis of all of his great ideas is a bunch of semi-abstract pussy paintings, and he's got his eye on Charlotte as his next model. Perry heads back to Balzac for another go with Samantha and predictably finds Amelita there with a new guy. She considers taking them up on an offer to head off to Venice for the weekend, but then observes, just because Venice was thinking didn't mean my morals had to go down too, and walks to the ladies' room. The episode wraps up at the gallery where Charlotte is opening the pussy painting exhibition and to the very strange soundtrack of Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, the girls run around trying to figure out which painting is Charlotte's vagina. Real, real weird. <laughs> real weird there at the end. If my friend had had her vagina painted and was on the wall of a gallery, I would not run around trying to figure out which one was her. I don't know if I would or wouldn't, but it's not all that surprising that these three do, right? I mean, that's sort of fit. That's on brand for this, for the show and for this group. Um, Probably true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just so shocked. There's so many things in this episode that watching it again, um, preparing for this conversation stood out to me. But like here you have Charlotte in the art barn with all of these paintings around her and the wife with the cookies and the lemonade. And she's like a little shocked Bambi deer who's like, what? I couldn't possibly. And then suddenly at the end, she's like absolutely comfortable in a room full of these paintings, one of them being of her and like, doesn't seem to care. And so I just, such an interesting transition that we don't really get an explanation for. And I don't mean to make a ton of that little thing, but that just really stood out to me. Well, and I think the show kind of does that constantly, like not only in this season, but throughout the seasons, kind of, it hasn't actually made a decision about whether Charlotte is this kind of Upper East Side prude, like waspy woman or if she's actually got this kind of harlot somewhere inside of her that's just itching to get out, right? Right. Which actually makes her a little bit more of an interesting character. She wouldn't be very interesting if she just was one or the other. It's that kind of balance that I think they try to strike 
and sometimes hit and sometimes miss that makes her a little bit more interesting. But yeah, it's kind of stunning when, you know, wifey comes out and with the, the cookies and lemonade and just throws around the C word. I know. And she's like, and I bet you have a beautiful C. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's a priceless moment in that episode. I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of the C word, which is why I will not say it. But when we did the vagina monologues senior year of college, I actually did the monologue that is titled that word and you say it many, many times while you're doing the monologue, but I find that it really bothers other people. So I'd be respectful of that. That's fair. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, we could spend probably a whole episode unpacking what what my, what my issue is with it, but it's just never been my favorite. So, yeah. and I, yeah. I will say almost anything, but that is one for whatever reason mm. that, that sticks a mm. little. <laughs> well, now that we've unpacked the uh, side story in this episode a little bit, why don't we get down to our coaching questions for the girls this week? So my first question is for Carrie, um, since she's obviously, you know, this is season one, we're getting mostly Carrie storylines. Everybody else's storylines are really kind of in the background in this episode and for the rest of the season. But for Carrie, you know, what makes parlaying sex for financial stability okay for Amelita, but not for you? So, you know, when she first sees Amelita, she kind of, you know, talks about her being viewed as Euro trash as a way of saying, you know, other people really don't seem to like her. And as the episode goes on, it, it seems like the reason is that she's got this habit of finding rich men to kind of keep her along the way um, as she makes her way in life. And Carrie seems actually okay with that for Amelita. She, she thinks Amelita's fun. She doesn't have any problem hanging out with her. But then, like, when the same opportunity or possibility is presented to Carrie, she looks at it as a real, like, moral problem. You know, that that she's, her morals are going to go down like Venice if she does what Amelita does. So I'm just, I would be curious to know, like, what what's the difference for Carrie? That uh, she's okay with Amelita doing it, but not for herself. Yeah, I think the whole storyline with her and Gilles is super interesting in that, Looking at it through a 2021 lens, I look at it and say, okay, so she had this fling, if you will, one night stand, no strings attached, lovely time with this man who was basically pretty respectful of her. I mean, it was nothing, totally consensual experience. They seemed to enjoy themselves. She felt like she was in a French film and he didn't leave her his number and she didn't give him her number. And that's sort of like not a big deal when I look at it through 2021 eyes. Mm-hmm. But when I think about it through 1998 eyes, like one night stands yeah. were gross and like, <laughs> not that mm-hmm. I thought they were, but like, you know what I mean? Sort of like societally people really had a judgment for that. So maybe what we see a little bit is Carrie carrying the world's shoulds of what it should look like when you should be allowed to have sex with somebody. And we kind of see that over the next couple episodes of like, what's too much. And, you know, like that sex is this thing that has to be saved for a particular situation and no judgment on if that is how you choose to do it. Mm. But I think we have a lot more room in 2021 to make sex kind of on our terms versus on what society says the term should be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, this is an instance where the age difference between us makes a big difference because, you know, I was graduating high school in 98. Like I didn't really have, I definitely didn't have any sexual relationships at that time. And I wouldn't for kind of a long while. 
So I didn't like none of this was on my radar and I wouldn't be able to speak to kind of what the atmosphere was in 1998 in terms of, you know, acceptability of one night stands. So that's interesting. And, you know, it's kind of a follow-up question to, to that, you know, that's like the very hard question. Like, why is it okay for Amelita and not for you? But I think that like the softer question for Carrie, which is more of like a mind frame issue is what caused her to shift from viewing the date as a bad date with a cash bonus which you could also dig into why she's calling it a bad date because she actually really thought it was a great date. But she shifts from bad date with a cash bonus to calling it hooker money and talking about her morals going down the way Venice is thinking. So she starts off with this kind of, you know, lighthearted view of it. I'm, you know, I'm going to invite the girls, you know, to the hotel room to enjoy some brunch with me. We're going to talk about it, but, you know, I'm just going to try to be you know, lighthearted about it. And then as the episode progresses, she gets more and more negative about how she feels about getting this money from this guy. So there, I mean, it's a complicated, like, so as she's like floating off into the sky after the, after the (laughs) first night they meet, she talks about like seeing all these red flags, like that the guy is divorced. And I forget what the other red flags are. And I had a moment watching it back just yesterday where I was like, red flags, like you literally just met this dude, you know, full well, he's only in New York for this limited period of time. He's going to Brazil, like he has made no moves that indicate that he wants like a long term serious emotional connection. I mean, yes, he asked her to move to Paris slash come to Brazil with him. But that very clearly came across to me as like, why wouldn't you It'd be fun? You know, not like yeah. we have this deep, meaningful connection. So what does it even matter? Like, how are those red flags even relevant unless she's in the mindset of every person that I have a relationship with is like sort of the Charlotte mindset is closer to getting me closer to that. This is the person I'm going to marry, or this is the person I'm going to be with. And like, in my mind, Jill is not even on that. Like he's not even in that playing field, you know, like that's a whole different experience. And so to have all these feelings about like, you know, they didn't exchange numbers or I mean, and I, I even, well, the money, like, let's talk about that for a second. What do you think that was about? So, I mean, to me, it seems like Gilles, this is what he does, right? He like kind of goes from port to port and he enjoys creating this kind of cinematic, beautiful, dreamy fantasy experience for beautiful, interesting women for a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And that he is... I don't even think that in his mind, he thinks of it as like, I'm paying this woman for her time. It is literally, I think to him, like a cash bonus. Like, thanks so much for spending a few beautiful days with me. I enjoyed our little, you know, cinematic tryst, you know, go buy yourself some shoes. Yeah. I mean, I sort of have the question mark in my head of, I'm not even sure Gilles leaves money every time. Like, I actually think like, would he have left that money if she hadn't made the point that she was worried about money? Oh, yeah. Maybe he was actually just like in a position to do that and was like, we had a really nice time. I think you're a really nice person. Maybe this will help you a little. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, such an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it until you just said it. Maybe I'm a little too like, I don't know, rose colored glasses or optimist. You know, maybe I'm not cynical enough, but I just, I didn't see it as like super insulting. I don't know how I would have felt if I were Carrie, but I feel like if she had any expectations of an emotionally deep relationship, like, that's her own fault because that was not ever on the table. And so treat it as what it was. 
you know, a fun little fling. And would she have felt the same way if, for example, on their, you know, Claude Lelouch or whatever she says film on their day of fun, if he had like walked her into the shoe store and bought her shoes, would she have felt the same way about it? Oh, yeah. Right. Like if he had been the one that walked up with the credit card and bought her the Marabou shoes, like would that have been the same to her? That's a really good point. And I I think that Carrie's drawing a little bit too straight of a line between what happens to her in this episode and what Amelita does. And, you know, that's not meant to be like a judgment, but she clearly thinks that there is a judgment to be made about these types of behaviors, right? So she kind of thinks, if I take this money, I'm automatically, like, not just a sex worker, but a a hooker, right? right? She doesn't use sex worker. She doesn't even say prostitute. She says hooker. She says whore. Right. So if I accept this, that makes me something. And she also seems to actually believe that about Amelita, although she (laughs) kind of denies it beginning of the episode. Well, and I think like I thought long and hard about this because I I really was thinking about where is that line? And for me, comes down to like if both people in the situation are aware of what is happening and choose Mm -hmm. to engage in it, then why is anybody commenting on the appropriateness of it? Right. Like, so Amelita has Carlos or Carlo, I can't remember. And then she has new Venice crew that she, you know, and now she's gone from the four seasons to now she's at the Carlisle and right. But like, if it's, if it's understood what's happening, then I'm not sure what the, what the big rub is. Right. Right. And I mean, you know, and she makes the big, when Amelita sees Carrie at Balzac, the, you know, the first time that she shows up um, when she's meeting Jill, she makes a big deal about her like $13,000 bracelet that Carlo brought for her that day. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, so he brought her, he bought her a nice gift. Again, she bought you a nice gift earlier that day. Right. (laughs) Right. And and frankly, actually he bought Carrie the nice gift, but (laughs) Well, okay. Good point. Good point. And like she was somehow that was okay because Carrie hadn't done anything in that. con. I I don't know. Like it's super, I don't know. There's just a lot here to unpack. And like I said, it goes back to like, I try to put myself in that 1998 mindset too of like Mm. the scandalousness that was implied around a one night stand that I just Mm. don't think exists in the same way societally now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I guess, you know, what I want to circle back to is the fact that, again, this entire season, the theme of power and women's power and power within relationships has been prevalent in every single episode. So my next question is actually for everybody, all the girls, what makes an advantage based on sexuality or attraction different from other types of advantages? I mean, I don't know. You probably can't hear hear me, but I just took a big sigh because I don't know. I mean, I don't know. They seem to feel very strongly, right? So Samantha at poker night, when Charlotte brings up this whole thing about, you know, this Neville's invited me to his art barn. I'm going to go, you know, see his new work, but I feel like he might've only invited me because he's attracted to me. Samantha says, who cares why he invited you? You know, go get the art, girl. That's your job. You you know, you're a gallery manager. You should be trying to get the best art possible. Who cares why he invited you? And Miranda reacts like equally and violently in opposition and says, if he's doing what you say he's doing, let's sue him. Like, wow. Okay. So not only would Charlotte not get the art, she would 
completely obliterate any possibility of having, you know, a, a friendly relationship with this person in the future and maybe getting, you know, future shows from him. So what is the difference that they are trying to articulate between yeah. an advantage gained based on sexuality, even if like Charlotte, you know, you're not putting yourself out there in that way. You're just being received in that way versus getting some other sort of advantage that's not based on your sexuality or attractiveness or, you know, whatever. It's super interesting, right? Because, and maybe this just comes from a difference in, what's the right way to say this? Like a difference in the context of where they both work. That's the way to say it, right? Mm -hmm. So Charlotte, Charlotte is in this world that is all about beauty and glamour and fitting the mold. And I'm not saying for right or for wrong, right? But like, so the way that this whole thing with Neville unfolds for her is like, he finds her intriguing. So he invites her to the art farm and then he asks to paint her. I don't know that I got the vibe that a ton of boundaries were broken there. And right. I don't know that I got the vibe that if Charlotte had been like, yeah, no, not interested, that he would have been like, you're blacklisted forever. I don't know that she gets the art show if she doesn't do that. But I don't get the sense that it was like meant to be a pressure filled situation. He was just being like a weird artist dude. And that's, that is what it is. And maybe I'm making yeah. excuses for him. I don't mean to, but like. Versus the world in which Miranda works in, which is such a, I mean, you and I have both worked in law firms. Yeah. It's a different kind of world. And so for her, it's like probably has felt like an uphill climb to get people to stop thinking of her as a woman, as crazy as that sounds. And so it feels oh, really. It doesn't sound crazy. It doesn't sound crazy <laughs> I know, at all. I know. <laughs> but, but whereas like, so then it feels kind of like dangerous to be introducing this element in I think to Miranda in a way that it probably doesn't to Charlotte. Well, yeah. And you bring up a really good point about, you know, the, where the girls work, right? So Samantha's in PR, we know that, you know, being attractive and kind of of the moment is very important in that profession. Carrie's a writer, but she has a sex column. So, you know, her level of, of attractiveness and beauty, you know, comes up frequently, you know, with the, <laughs> we're going to see soon the, uh, the photo on the side of the bus. Yes. You know, that's a theme for them. So those three women actually live in a world where beauty, attraction, you know, sexuality is important on a daily basis. And you made the really good distinction that like Miranda is trying to on probably on some level, like desexualize herself in order to survive and thrive in the world of law firms. And it's interesting. I actually read an article that was recently published about an interview with Pat Field, who was the costume designer for the show. Mm. And she admitted that especially in those early seasons, they did not pay the kind of attention to Miranda's wardrobe mm. that they did to the other girls. Mm -hmm. And the justification was, well, she's a really a career girl. Like she wouldn't pay as, as much attention as the other girls would. So we wanted to dress her to like, you know, give that impression. So especially in the, the, the early season, Miranda is very much like that stereotype that mm -hmm. you cannot be, you know, a woman, you cannot be feminine, you cannot be any sort of, you know, you can't really be a woman and survive and thrive in the world that she lives in, which is law firms, legal, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. I'm really glad that you used that word dangerous when you talked about it, because that's leading me into my next question, awesome. which is from Miranda. So Miranda has this really violent reaction to what Samantha says in the hotel room. After Gio leaves and Carrie invites them back for brunch and Samantha's trying to kind of soothe Carrie and her feelings, like, don't worry too much about the thousand dollars. You know, if he's going to give it, you can take it. And Miranda gets violently angry 
and starts kind of running down the like, you know, feminist tropes. Like, is this really, you know, what you want to be saying? This is what's kept women down for centuries, all this stuff. So I want to ask Miranda, what feels threatening about the possibility that your girlfriends use their sexuality to gain power? Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the line that Samantha says right before Miranda unleashes is something along the lines of almost a statement that biologically men give women receive. Right. And I think this goes back to what we, a little bit to what we were just talking about of wanting to succeed on her merits in a very male dominated environment that is not even in 1998 and frankly, even in 2021, super (laughs) welcoming of femininity or women generally. Mm -hmm. And so almost needing to close off that part of her to succeed, you know, in her mind or to succeed the quote unquote right way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is a messy, murky episode because what is the answer to that? Right. Right. And I feel like, you know, very recently, like maybe since the pandemic, we've started having a conversation in the legal community specifically about, you know, a a meaningful and a more meaningful and more useful conversation about how do we make this an environment where women can thrive? Because women have really been asked to do things the quote unquote male way, right? Like choose work over family, you know, set aside, you know, let someone else take over the primary responsibility for raising your children so that you can continue to work, right? It's this, it's this horrible set of choices that you have to make in order to, you know, have children and a family if you want them, but also have a fulfilling and rewarding career if you want one. And Miranda is really articulating for us that she has had to really cut off the part of her that indulges in these, you know, kind of feminine ideas that your sexuality can be powerful, that you can gain advantage by, you know, using your sexuality. Maybe even, you know, that you could have a romantic relationship that isn't based in power, because we've seen Miranda really (laughs) engage in that with Skippier and others. So it feels to me a lot like, you know, do as I do to make me feel good about my choices. Like if, if my girlfriends continue to use their sexuality for power and I have to cut that part of myself off, I'm being shown what I'm losing or missing or choosing, you know, to ignore. And that's really hard for her, I think. I think that's right. And I also think there's a part of the narrative in which she probably believes that men don't use their sexuality for power. And so it's like, A, I don't want an unfair advantage, but I also don't want an unfair disadvantage. So I'm just going to cut off this whole part of myself. And and I think yeah. we could, you know, have a conversation about whether that's even an accurate premise to start with. And why, I mean, like really globally, like why is our sexuality separate from ourself, right? Like we just are who we are. And so it's not about power coming from our sexuality or whatever. It's about showing up kind of as who you are and stuff happens. Right. And by stuff, I mean like your career, your life, your, you know, relationships, whatever. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting point. And I, I mean, it goes back to like, we could probably mention, you know, fellow Berkeley coach, right. Who's written the book on this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Exactly. You know, it goes back to this idea that like there is an archetype of success and that archetype has been, you know, traditionally male um, and that really to allow 
diversity to exist in the workplace and in the world and have multiple people be successful, we actually need to change the archetypal requirement, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's what we're seeing a nod to here, I think a little bit, is that tension. And I think the book you're referring to, because I really do want to actually say this uh, for our listeners to be able to pick this up and actually read through it, is The Fix. Overcome the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back at Work. It's by Michelle P. King, also um, a BECI, Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute graduate. So yeah, I mean, just this idea that it doesn't work. It doesn't work for everybody. I mean, it doesn't even work for men. Right, right. You know, the fact that women are harmed by it doesn't mean that men aren't. They very much are. But yeah, Miranda's, uh, she's in it in this episode. She really is. I mean, she's clearly got some strong feelings about it, right? Like, and I can come up with some, some potential backstories that put her there too, right? Law firms are not a fun place to work as a young female. Maybe not as a female period, but like specifically as a young female. And I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure it's not perfect now. I like to believe it's improved a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, hopefully it will continue to improve. So um, I just want to recap our coaching questions from this week, Um, talking about the power of female sex. And my first question was for Carrie. What makes parlaying sex for financial stability okay for Amelita, but not for you? And the follow-up to that was what caused the mindset shift from your date with Gilles as a bad date with cash bonus to thinking about it as hooker money and your morals going down. Then for everybody, what makes an advantage based on sexuality or attraction different from other types of advantages? And finally, for Miranda, what feels so threatening about the possibility that your girlfriends use their sexuality to gain power? Yep. Good question. It's good stuff to think about. Like I said, I feel like this is a murky, thought-provoking when you allow it to be episode that goes way beyond this, you know, marabou slippers and Euro trash world. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I think that the episode definitely struggles to come to any sort of conclusion. And I think that that's both intentional and like also kind of, it's it's a weird balance because they're trying to have the Mirandas of the world, you know, have their perspective you know, heard. And we definitely have Carrie at the end thinking like, this was a pretty bad experience. I hope I never get money for sex again. But then we've also got, you know, Charlotte reveling in her vagina picture and we've got, you know, her celebrating her success and Samantha feeling like, you know, this is a great way to, you know, advance yourself in your life and your career. So, you know, lots of questions, (laughs) things to think about. So. Yep. Awesome. Thanks so much for tuning in everybody. And um, we'll be back for our next episode. it's Becky. To connect with me, the easiest way is to head over to my website at untanglehappiness.com. There you can learn more about the services I offer, as well as get additional information about my book, The Happiness Recipe, a powerful guide to living what matters. I look forward to connecting with you. Hey, it's Carrie. I would love to connect with you out in the world at carriewalshcoaching.com. There you'll find more information about me, coaching, blog posts, and an opportunity to sign up for my newsletter. Or if you or your company is looking for executive coaching, you can check out theatalantagroup.com for more information. That's the A-T-A-L-A-N-T-A group.com.